our series, Prophet, Priest, and King in 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 18, the last half of chapter 18 this morning. Um, and we're going to talk about dysfunctional men. Seems like a bit of a repetitious, just like dysfunctional men. That's just saying the same thing twice, right? Um, Saul, Saul is our case study. We've been looking at his life enough now. I think we can kind of use him as the, the poster boy. Um, you know, we get this phrase in our culture today. We, we talk about toxic masculinity. And I just got to come clean with you guys. I really hate the term toxic masculinity. Um, and I'm, say, I'm saying all this. I mean, don't, don't, I hope you're not worried. Like, he's going to pull a Mark Driscoll and he's going to yell at the room for 20 minutes. It's like, I don't know. But, what, but I, I do want to invite you to think about what we mean when we say it. And who started it? Who started this whole toxic fill-in-the-blank? Um, and why do we make up new terms? I, I think, uh, honestly, I think it's because um, when we label something, it gives us some sense of control. It's an illusion, but it gives us some sense of control over a thing. And I think we create new labels because we don't, we just don't like the biblical category of sin. It's too broad. Uh, it's too much of what we love and enjoy falls into that category. And, um, but that's, that's just the reality according to God's word, right? When, when men or women transgress their proper boundaries in life, disobey God, or become enmeshed with things that are forbidden to us as people, is sin. It's called sin. It's just pure and simple. And we've been looking really closely at King Saul, who was a man with the physical stature of a king, but the character of one who does not know the Lord God. He ended up acting like the kings of the other nations, like a total pagan, instead of an Israelite belonging to God. But now in, in, good, in God's goodness and providence, all of this is a forewarning Given by Samuel, if you'll remember, back before they established Saul as king, there was a warning of what an earthly king was going to result in in the nation of Israel. So Saul becomes the case study for that. And uh, he's modeling the worst of human leadership so that all of Israel can see it and then compare and contrast when David comes to power later. Um, and, and if you know the story, if you've read your Old Testament, you know David has issues later too. He's not perfect. Um, but if you're looking for the perfect man, don't look at Saul or David or Mike Satterfield. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the only perfect man. Saul could be impulsive, and he frequently made unwise decisions. His jealousy and fear of David drove him to madness and a thirst for revenge. On more than one occasion, Saul disobeyed God's instructions, thinking he knew better. Saul is a boy that can shave. He's a boy in a man's body. He, he, he has a man body with preteen impulses and preteen thinking. Those, those are dangerous males. And one might be tempted to say they're even toxic. Um, but I think we're better off acknowledging that they're spiritually and emotionally underdeveloped. Labeling men as toxic is mostly an excuse to send them off to the hinterland so we don't have to deal with them. Uh, but as the church... We're in the best position to come alongside immature people and help them grow or reform if we're willing to invest and put in the hard work of doing that, coming alongside people, 
right? So let's just talk for a minute about God's good design before we get to the text. He's the one who made humanity, and he made us male and female. And he gave, uh, he, he gave us masculine and feminine traits accordingly. So the biology of humanity and the physiology is very different, even though both men and women are fully human. But understand this. Masculinity is authoritative. Masculinity is authoritative. A man cannot wield it until he has learned to be under it. It's a huge problem in our, in our culture. Young guys want to wield authority and have never learned to be under authority. Boys and men in the room this morning, listen, you, you have to learn to be under authority if you ever hope to be a good authority over others. If you're an adult in the room this morning, you very likely, you know what it is to be under a bad authority at some point in your life. But if we as parents and grandparents are not teaching our children what it means to submit to God, uh, to good godly authority, then, then what we're doing is we're raising a generation who will want to wield authority like a hammer, but will not want to submit to authority. So we've got to be careful as parents and grandparents that we're training our children to respond well to godly authority. And, and so what happens is we're raising a generation who won't submit to authority. We're just supplying the next generation of pole dancers and their patrons. They're not going to stay in the church. Don't, don't hang on to that illusion. So what I'm saying is that this issue begins in the home, but it must be addressed in the church as well, or everything just falls like dominoes. Everything just falls like dominoes. Authority flows to and through those who take responsibility. It flows away from those who avoid responsibility and evade responsibility. We have to take responsibility the way Jesus did, by sacrificing ourselves. Guys, I'm especially talking to you. God has put us in the role of self-sacrifice in the home. Um, and that means not lording over the people around us. And, and, and still we're not ready to engage with the text yet. <laughs> There's still some pre-work to do. Let's talk for just a moment about a topic that will send our culture into a full-on rage, worthy of a caffeinated toddler without a nap. We're talking about God-ordained roles in the home. I would just, just bring that up. I mean, if you have the chance to be on, a, on a, 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 a talk show, like a network talk show or a news broadcast, and you want to bring up like roles in the home, like godly, biblical roles, people are just going to explode. Um, now, it's, it's this reality. It might sound old-fashioned, archaic, but it's actually timeless. See, God gave us mommies and daddies, which are biological females and males, respectively. And I can't believe that we live in a moment of time where I have to make that distinction. <laughs> it's, it's insane to me. Um, and, and you don't get to be a mommy unless you're a biological female. Gosh, you shouldn't have to. I mean, you know, it's like we live in a day where you have to say that. And then, and then 50% of the population is up in arms because you said that. How dare you say that men can't be mommies, that men can't lactate? It's like, what planet are you living on? God gave the primary nurturing role to moms, to mothers. He didn't call them to the role of headship over the home. Headship is God's term for leading the family the way Jesus leads the church. That's what headship is in a nutshell. It's leading your family the way Jesus leads the church. And you can see that in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to go after church, read that chapter. <clears throat> it's not defined by sex. In other words, it's not simply defined by 
by the virtue that one of you is male and the other is female, because when you look at the Trinity, God the Father is the head of Christ, and Christ is not female. So this raises an interesting point. Christ is co-equal to the Father and the Spirit. Nevertheless, the Father is Christ's head, which incidentally is why I believe feminism is a Trinitarian heresy. Think about that one. Get back to me. We'll have coffee this week. Headship in the home does not relegate a non-head person to the position of doormat or property. And we got to get this right because the, the world and the next generation are watching us as the church. So what about headship in the church? Well, God's given the church pastors and elders. And men, if you're qual- qualified for that role, we, we would love to talk to you because we need more pastors and elders. Um, if you, but here's the deal. Like, it begins with stewardship at home because if you're not a good steward in your home, you're not going to be a good steward in the church. The one is the qualification for the other. And we are called men to the glad assumption of responsibility. There's more to our biblical manhood definition. We'll save it for later in the sermon. But to say that men are called to the glad assumption of responsibility is not to say that women are not called to the glad assumption of responsibility. Um, to, to, to believe that uh, as a church that men and fathers really matter in the life of um, in the life of the family and in ministry of the church is not to say that women don't matter. What's being argued here is that men are called, not that women are not called. It, it, to say that dads are indis- indispensable to the family is not to say you can drop mom any old time, right? A person should be able to write a book about the value of vitamin D without having to write another book about the value of vitamin E and all the other, right? We just live in this contentious culture. It's like, well, you said this thing, and that must necessarily mean you hate it's like, no, 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 no. All of this talk about gender and family leads us here. Men are hardwired for success, to conquer, to vanquish. You don't have to teach a little boy to pick up a stick and pretend like it's a sword. It happens. It just happens. It's hardwired. Men are hardwired for success. We're hardwired to conquer. We're hardwired to vanquish and overcome. And as a result, nothing so affects a man as failure. It causes a man to question everything about himself. Do do I I really have what it takes to be a man? It's a question at the heart of every man. Now, I'll just tell you, my sons, from the time that they could crawl, they wanted to wrestle. They wanted to wrestle with me because it's a form of asking the question, do I have what it takes? Am I masculine? Am I, am I manly? Am I strong? But because of the fall and because of sin, men are deeply afraid of failure. So fearful, in fact, that we develop sinful tendencies to find strange comfort in the failure of others. I'd love to see that guy fail over there because it makes me feel better about me. That's just sinful. Ladies, this is why your husband will pour himself into the things that he does well and likes to do and then neglect other things that he doesn't do well. Uh, What that normally looks like is his work and his hobbies. It's the path of least resistance. His hyper-focus on those things is a result of the fall and the curse in Genesis 3. And there's, there's so much more to say about this, far more, but this brings us to King Saul because he becomes our case study uh, for, for this reality of, of dysfunctional men. We're going to go to the text now this morning. And we're in the last half of 1 Samuel 18. So we're going to start in verse 17, and we'll work our way all the way to verse 30. So let's look at this. Saul said to David, 
Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. So Saul is duplicitous. He's duplicitous. He's, he has, he's being of two minds. He's deceitful and treacherous. And you're going to see two attempts in these eight verses to take David's life. Back, back in 17, verse 17 and, and 18 and 19, Saul had offered his oldest daughter, Merib, to David. But Saul had failed to follow through on this promise regarding uh, this part of the stated reward. Remember what he said about killing Goliath? You can marry my daughter in, in addition to everything else. And, and that was tied, you know, David did defeat Goliath, and now that, that defeat of Goliath seems insufficient for David to marry into the king's family. Because now he's like, well, well yeah, but only do this. Now, now be valiant and, and fight my battles for me. And so here in verse 17, we see Saul tacking on more qualifications for marrying Merib. He says, only be, be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. Well, which is it, Saul? Uh, do, you, do you want me to be valiant f- for you or for the Lord? Am I fighting my battles? You, you want me to make you look good or, or am, I, am I doing this for the Lord? Like, which, which is it? It's, it's just patronizing. And Saul's just dragging this along. He, does, he doesn't have any intention of giving Merib to, to David. Clearly, Saul has a very atrophied conscience. It's weak and shriveled up through lack of use. Regarding Merib, it seems to be an easy thing for him to simply change his mind regarding a promise to whoever would kill the giant. He's just ignoring this earlier promise. And David is fighting the Lord's battles. R- remember Saul's inner monologue, right? Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul's more focused on and concerned for himself and his position than he is even about Israel's national security. By putting David in harm's way with an ongoing war with the Philistines, he hopes to absolve himself of having shed innocent blood. And despite Saul's long, deepest longings, he does not, uh, this doesn't lead to David's death. Rather, what it happens is it's a decisive factor that makes him eligible for the kingship. So Saul would, uh, would use the express will of God to accomplish his nefarious purposes, but God's going to turn it all to his, his purposes, his will. It's naive of Saul to think that God's going to let him go on a technicality, right? David's response here to all of this and the offer of Merib is one of true humility. Look at the contrast between Saul and David. David says, who am I? Who am I? I, I I'm nobody of importance. You know the irony of that? Just a a few chapters back, Saul was nobody of importance either. He was the son of Kish, and he was chasing donkeys. Chasing lost donkeys all over Israel. He was nobody. It's only the Lord that makes us what we are. So in the end, Saul reneges on his promise. And he gives Merib to another man. And so verse 20 Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, because Saul thought, well, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Who thinks like that about giving their daughter to somebody? I want to kill that guy. I want to see him do poorly, so I'll give him my daughter. Like, I, I hope that you think more highly of your children than that. It just, it just blows my mind, uh, the, the thoughts of Saul that we have here. And in verse 21, he says, Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. So the second daughter of Saul loves David, but dad hates him. And both David and Saul see this proposal as an opportunity for their respective aims. David takes the opportunity to become the king's son-in-law, and Saul takes the opportunity to utilize his daughter's love for David to attempt to destroy him. I mean, just imagine for a minute that he's successful in that. What does that do to your relationship with your daughter? He's, He's not thinking clearly at all. It should be clear what difference the Lord's presence makes in a person's life at this point. And just a word about marriage this morning, if I could just take a moment to divert on this for just a sec. We typically think of marriage as either a contract or a commitment. And let me just explain this. A contract is an agreement between uh, two or more parties, especially one that is written out and enforceable enforceable by the laws of man. That's, That's a contract. A commitment is different. A commitment is the state of being bound emotionally or intellectually to a course of action or sometimes to another person. But what marriage is, is not a commitment or a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is very different because a covenant directly involves the God of heaven and earth. It's not just between people. God's involved. See, a, a, a contract is something that's sealed in my own name. It's why we sign on the bottom line, right? And a covenant, on the other hand, whether it's made between two individuals or a person in the living God, it's sealed by the making of a vow or an oath in God's name. That's why when a person takes a vow or an oath, even in today's society, we end it with the phrase, so help me God, right? So, so a contract then is a legally, binding, uh, a, a legally binding thing according to the laws of men, but a covenant is bonding according to the law of God and has eternal connotations. It's... it's uh, it ends when one or both parties die. That's when the covenant is over, okay? Um, a contract's legally binding, but a covenant goes on and on, and, and covenant links two parties together inextricably. You can't pull that apart without doing damage. A contract is just an exchange of property, right, in, in the form of goods and services. We say, well, that's yours, and this is mine, and, and you, can take the, you can have the sofa, but I want the dog, and that's, that's, that's contract. That's contractual, right? But covenant is the exchange of persons. Covenant says, I am yours, and you are mine. That's a very different attitude. So from the perspective of the individual entering into covenant, it's not conditional on the other person to keep their promise to keep the covenant. Let me just say that again, because we, we have this, as Americans, 21st century Americans, we have this really jacked up idea about covenants. We're like, well, they didn't keep their end of the bargain, and they weren't, they weren't doing their part, so I have the freedom to bail on this marriage. It's like, no, 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 no. no. Covenant is... Uh, irrespective of what the other person does, I'm keeping covenant because God is the witness here. This, this involves the living God, right? And so this is a big deal. When you enter into a marriage covenant, you're promising to love the other person even if they fail to do the same. 
And when God made covenant with the Jews, he always kept his covenant regardless of their actions. I mean, just just read the rest of the Old Testament. They are jacked up. They disobey all the time. They mess it up all the time. And God never says, well, I'm done with you. And praise God that he doesn't. Because how many times have we screwed up? He never says that. He says, I'm still in this covenant that we made together. God's covenants were and are predicated on his character, not on his people's ability to keep the covenant. So we get to verse 22. Saul commands his servants. He says, go speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. (coughs) So from David's perspective, this is a really big deal. And he's not taking it lightly, and he's right to do that. He's just a shepherd from a farming family, and he's reluctant to accept uh, because of his humble background. And I'm I'm actually shocked because, you know, we're just a few chapters from from when, when Samuel anointed Saul to this it hasn't been a super long time, but how entrenched this monarchy has become already, how normalized so quickly. But I guess, you know, when God directly appoints Saul in, in, earlier in 1 Samuel, I, that probably has something to do with it. But nobody voted for Saul in an election. God just appointed him as king. And, and we know that most monarchies are hereditary. They're passed from generation to generation in a family line of succession. But we've already seen Jonathan acknowledge David's coming rule. And Jonathan making covenant with David and, and giving up his, his weapons and his, even his robe, his, his kingly, his, his, his uh, princely robe to David, acknowledging that he's going to inherit the throne from his father, not Jonathan. So, so for David to marry the king's daughter and become part of his family is a huge deal. This is a big deal. So verse 25, we'll keep going here. So Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price, uh, I've labored over this this week. Um, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. So Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Um, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. So let's deal with this. Uh, we're talking about the concept of a bride price, which we don't really have in our culture. Uh, but all the way back in Genesis 34, this was established um, because Hamor spoke with them and said, the son of my soul, the, the, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Would you give her to him to be his wife? Make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself so we can dwell together. The land will be open to you. Dwell in it, trade, get property. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and and gifts as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So this idea of a bride price was something in an agrarian society a daughter was an invaluable member of the family. 
the, the, the labor and the work that she added to the family as a, as a farming family who raised their own meat and raised their own vegetables was just invaluable. To lose her in a marriage was, a, was an incredible loss. And so it was right for the family of the son who was going to marry her and make her his wife to compensate the other family for the loss of the daughter. And this is the, the concept. In Exodus 22, verse 16 and 17, uh, we're told in the law of God, if a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price, or shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall still pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You've still got to compensate the family. So compensation for the family in an agrarian culture for the loss of the daughter, right? On the surface, Saul seems to be gracious, the the would-be father-in-law, making a way for the happy couple to have their heart's desire. And there's a very real sense in which this offer acknowledges David's valor and does him much honor. This is asking him to go into Philistine territory and, and kill some people to get this bride price. And the, the bride price for Michael is 100 Philistine foreskins. David, being an overachiever, delivers twice that. And understand that this was, <laughs> this was not asking friendly neighbors to borrow a cup of sugar. Okay, this is, not, this is not sending out a mass email to your aunt, uncle, family members, and every person you know to each send you $5 so you can make the down payment on your dream car. This, this, this is something totally different. David, what David, David endeavors to do involves the death of Philistine men who, to be fair, were the sworn enemies of Israel. But he's not asking to borrow anything. Uh, to accomplish this bride price would require the death of 100 men or as it actually turns out, 200. And apparently David's just exuberant about marrying Michael, and he's a bit of an overachiever. So with the bride price paid, Michael is now legally, according to Jewish law, wedded to David, even though the ceremony is not taking place. They are betrothed, okay? Now, if you think that bride price was something, just wait till my little girl finds her man. And, uh, and I just hope that that successfully dissuades any potential suitors at this point. So (laughs) verse 25 gives us Saul's true motive, his clear picture of his heart. Back in verse 20 to 24, he's expressed joy and excitement about Michael loving David. But we see now it's just a ruse. It's just pretend. It's a ploy to kill David. Saul's trying to make use of somebody else's love, his own daughter's love for David, to destroy David. That's... That's bad. That's low. That should be beneath Saul as king, but it's clearly not. He's fake. He's deceitful and disingenuous. He's only seeking his own gain, his own agenda. Verse 28, so when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually, and the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And once again, we just see Saul's best laid plans are backfiring on him. David's even more honored among the people as the king's son-in-law. Saul moves from fearing David to dreading David in verse 15, and now fearing him even more in verse 29. And just remember that all this insecurity is leading to misgivings and ploys and plots of Saul. It's all rooted in his fear. It's all rooted in his imagination. 
And here, with the bride price requirement, Saul's failed to harm David, failed to kill David. Instead, he's elevated David among the people once more. That ultimately serves to strengthen David's claim to the throne later. So it's just funny to see everything that Saul tries to do to undermine David. Eventually, the, the Lord just turns it for good to, to elevate David. I said this earlier. I'll say it again. Saul's a boy that can shave. He's not a man. I mean, in contrast, look at David. David's still a young man. He's, he's in the prime of his youth. He hasn't come into his full manhood yet. But even so, he's more mature and godly and responsible than the man who's in authority over him. And as men and women of, uh, who are under God's covenant, the life of King Saul serves as a mirror for us to uncover our own faults, to, to, to look at ourselves and to confess our sins to God and to make necessary changes in our lives so that we don't follow in his footsteps. Instead of building up Israel, King Saul wasted most of his time plotting against David. I mean, he's tasked with, the, with not just the protection of Israel, but the building up of that, of that nation. And, he, and he's focused on trying to snare David. Dysfunctional leaders, they waste time on their own deep insecurities instead of building others up. That's a sure sign of a dysfunctional leader. They tend to be poor stewards of people, even if they're savvy business leaders or, or successful in other areas. Saul was an unstable man. Very much like the man that James would describe in his letter in the New Testament in, in James chapter 1. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, here's what you need to do. Ask God. <laughs> ask God. Because he gives generously to all without reproach. And when you ask, it will be given. But ask in faith without doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. The, that person who asks God for wisdom but doubts that God's going to give him wisdom, he says that person should not suppose he's going to get anything from the Lord because that person's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. That's Saul. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. Saul was impulsive. He acted unwisely. His jealousy for David drove him to madness and a thirst for revenge. We see on multiple occasions King Saul disobeying God's express instructions, thinking that he knows better than the Lord which is the height of arrogance. Saul's jealousy of David blinded him to what God had already graciously given him. He's the, he's the king. It's good to be the king. He's the king. And, and when we compare ourselves with others, we, we all have the potential to succumb to this, by the way. You do understand. None of us are free from the temptation to end up here in our own insecurity. We have the potential to, to, to go there. When we compare ourselves with others, we become confused because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. We're not, we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves with others. We're supposed to look to the Lord. When, when we, we, we want what others have instead of being content with what God's provided, we're taking our eyes off the Lord. We have to remember He's equipped each one of us for our own specific mission for the life that He's called us to live. We don't, we don't need to be the evaluators of, of one another and, and, and checking each other constantly. Well, they're doing that. Well, I want to do that. So, no, focus on the Lord. What does the Lord want? What is Jesus saying to you? Our great God expects total obedience, not partial obedience with excuses. When God orders Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, do you remember this? Including their livestock. Saul spared their king and he spared the choice animals. And then he lied to Samuel, the prophet of God, 
He said, well, we're going to use the livestock for sacrifices anyway. But Saul, Saul thought he knew better than God. This is the very definition of sin. It always has adverse consequences. This has been his pattern the whole way through. And that's all applicable to everybody in the room. But I want to turn the focus back on the men this morning if we wrap up, especially dads. If you're in the room this morning and you're a guy, especially a dad, I want you to, I want you to just hear this. Some of you know this because you've been around long enough to have heard it before. This is, the, this is the definition of biblical manhood that God gave us quite a, quite a while back. And I, and I want you to just look at this as we say it together. Guys, men, I am called to the glad assumption of responsibility, to lead courageously, to love sacrificially, to make war on my enemy and on sin, to safeguard the weak, to protect and serve wholeheartedly, and to nurture a passion for Christ in those around me and under my care, to attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's what it means, gentlemen, to be a man after God's own heart. And I would just say to you this morning that the gospel is vital to this entire endeavor. But it is also something that's for us. The gospel is for us, and it functions in us when we receive it. And the truth is we're constantly tempted to forget the gospel in our daily living and as we go about our doing. How do we strive to continue to take sin seriously without coming under an avalanche of condemnation like Saul? You know what the answer is? The gospel. The answer is Jesus. We have a Savior. He paid the price for us. We still need to carry the weight of our sin around. We need to feel the weight of sin sometimes, guys, don't we? Just like David having to carry the head of Goliath. He, he had slain that enemy, but he still carried, he still felt the weight of it, didn't he? Right? We need to carry the weight sometimes just to feel the weight of Christ's victory on our behalf. But we have a better king than Saul. We have, we have King Jesus. And, and, and we get to imitate him. Now, this is the hard part. We think about Jesus, typically, and we're like, well, I can't see him. I try to talk to him. He generally doesn't talk back audibly. So it's hard to, you know, for, for guys who are really you know, material or hands-on, it's hard to feel like we have that connection. But it's imitation that governs the world. And so what we need to do as men is we need to be in the Word. And I just want to challenge you guys, if you're not already in a reading plan, just go back and start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or, even better still, if you can get your hands on a copy of A Harmony of the Gospels. Oh, man. It's one book, and every page has four columns. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And where those Gospels are occurring in real time in the life of Jesus, you have the text. And sometimes there's two columns with text. Matthew and Mark are recording. Sometimes it's just Luke recording something and the other Gospels aren't. Sometimes it's just John. But reading that chronologically, seeing the life and ministry of Jesus chronologically will help us clue in to who he is and what he's modeled for us. What he's modeled for us. We need that. Imitation governs the world. We've got to understand that reality. We're called to imitate Jesus. We have to provide examples then beyond ourselves of mature biblical manhood for other men and other boys in the church. And I just want to be really clear with you guys this morning. Um, I think Emmaus Road and the men here do a tremendous job of seeking to attain that. I really do. I'm so appreciative of guys like Gary 
who would stand up here as an elder. You know, he's the only elder right now. That's, that's circumstantial, but I'm so appreciative of so many of the men in this room who lead well. You lead your families well. You lead the church well. And, and so I just, uh, this, is, this is not, uh, there's not perfection in it, okay? We're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But there's a desire to attain it and to keep on submitting to what the Spirit's doing in us and all around us and through us. And that's what we're called to. It's when I look around at the church in our culture that I'm tempted to be discouraged. Not, not the church here, the church, the church in, the, in, the, in the United States. Today's church appears to be managed by the equivalent of ecclesiastical single moms. And there's a crisis of manhood. There's a crisis of masculinity in our culture because there's a crisis of masculinity in the church. We have an ever-increasing feelings-driven church in the United States more than a truth-driven, word-driven church. As a result, we create this false dichotomy. I see this all the time. I run in pastoral circles and church planter events, and I, and I talk to guys all over the region, and I hear this increasingly um, We've created this false dichotomy between love and theology or love and doctrine. Well, we're just called to love Jesus, which, which in, in today's church leads into all kind of weird, aberrant belief. It's like, no, if you love Jesus, you'll love his word. He is the word. You can't, there's no separation. It's not love or doctrine, love or theology. It's all one. It's all one. And I hear that dichotomy all around me in, in, in our region and in the church. And guys, I just want you to hear me. Biblical masculinity, biblical manhood in the church seizes upon and, and embraces doctrine and theology. Embraces it. It does, it does that with a view of teaching to the church and pressing it into our lives. And that starts at home with our own children. It necessitates the engaging of our minds and our hearts, which is to say it's not enough to just love Jesus if you don't believe the right things about Jesus. If you say, I love Jesus, but you don't believe the right things about Jesus, you're not really loving the real Jesus. So, so check it out. There's been and still is a failure of doctrinal nerve, like doctrinal surety that stands on right belief. It's, it's a deep fear of, of sharply cut doctrine and theology. It's an epidemic of dislike for dogma in a culture whose champion chief virtue is indecision. We're in a culture where it's like, oh, you, you can't decide, and, and you just, oh, that's like the best thing ever. You're wishy washy, go. You go. It's like, no, like there's truth here. There's truth. I hear, I hear pastors say things. And, oh, it breaks my heart. I hear pastors say, well, I think it's arrogant to assert your sureness about that doctrine or belief. And I'm like, really? You're saying it's arrogant to be sure? Are you sure? There's a little bit of logic here. This kind of floppy thinking produces evangelifish. Uh, no spine, no backbone, can't stand up for the truth. We look at Saul as a case study. We take a quick survey of the men in our church. Guys, we need fathers. The church needs fathers. Not to be fathers just at home, but to be fathers here, to be fathers in the church. We need authoritative, not authoritarian, authoritative, we got to know the difference, leadership, authoritative leadership. We need shepherd warrior poets. 
We need, we need guys like David. They go like kill a bear and then write a song about it. You know, it's like, we got to have that. Why would we not think courage is a necessary virtue for leadership in the church? So I, I just want to wrap up with this. I want to just give you handholds for this. I think, I think we're getting close to the end. There's like 52 pages of notes today. Um, there are two kinds of authority. Two kinds of authority. There's authority of office. There's authority of character. Okay? Authority of office. Every father has authority of office by default. Every policeman, every teacher, every principal, they all have authority of office simply by virtue of the role that they've been given in any given context. They have that authority. This is recognized and supported by the scriptures, even when the one who bears that authority is not up to snuff. It's not up to par. We're talking about Saul. He has authority as a king, even though he's not a good king. We honor this authority even when it's not sufficient because scripture directs us to honor the authority. But then there's authority of character. See, that's authority of office. <coughs> authority of office, <coughs> excuse me, and authority of character. This is the authority that we talked about that flows to and through those who take responsibility. This is the authority of blessing. A man in his home, as a dad, can and does have authority of office, right? But does not necessarily have spiritual authority. This, and so this is a call to embrace the gospel, gentlemen. This is the shaping of one's character and actions by the Spirit of God from within, not outward conformity to code of conduct. Authority of office uh, is like having the checkbook or having the debit card, and you hold that card. It has your name on it. it has your name on it. But spiritual authority or authority of character is actually having money in the bank, gentlemen. You can have the debit card, but if you don't have any money in the bank, it's not worth anything. Okay? Spiritual authority is having money in the bank. There are a lot of guys who puff out their chest, say, I've got authority, and then flash a card around, and there's nothing in the account. The one needs to support and undergird the other in order for them to function properly in a God-honoring way, right? The authority of office needs the, the spiritual authority undergirding it for that to function well. And we're a culture that has plenty of authority of office. We're a bureaucratic nightmare. But we, we have a great lack of true spiritual authority. And this is precisely why we have to return to a rich and full worship of the Father. And all that comes by the preaching of the Word and constant revisiting of the Gospel. And, and the reason for this is most seen clearly in Psalm 115 and 135, where the psalmist tells us that we become like whatever we worship. We become like whatever we worship. And, and we say we worship the Father and we worship Jesus. Are we becoming like God? Are we becoming like the Father? Let me give you one more weird little verse here and then we'll wrap this up. See, we can't refuse to neglect the Father and expect to have godly fathers. If we, know, if we neglect the Father, we get the inverse. We get uh, what, what's most clearly exemplified in this weird verse in Deuteronomy 14, 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Isn't that a weird verse? It's like, why is that in the Bible? Well, the point of that verse is that the very thing given for the nourishing of life must never be turned into the instrument of death. And we do that in the home unintentionally. When men lead from an authority of office without spiritual authority, what was given for the purpose of life becomes an instrument of death. 
Masculine authority is given to nourish life, not squelch life. Masculinity in the home is given by God for the building up and impartation of life, not death. When men assume authority, when men are forcefully asserting and dominating ways, it becomes an instrument of death, gentlemen. When, when men fail to live out sacrificial love and service to their wives and children, masculinity becomes an instrument of death. God gives men authority for others, not for self. Fathers are speaking about God the Father constantly. Do not have the option of shutting up. If you're a daddy in the room this morning, you represent God the Father whether you want to or not, 24-7, all day long, and you don't have the option of shutting up. You represent the Father. This is the, the, the merging and meeting of mercy and authority, law and grace. It's a hard balance for so many of us because so few have seen it handled well in our lives. But we have to be strict and severe in the ways that God is strict and severe. And then we have to be merciful and tender in the ways that God is merciful and tender. This is, you see why being immersed in God's word is so vital here. Not just a 15-minute-a-day devotion, but, but really feasting on the bread of life, guys. Let's be men like David who love the Lord with all our hearts, all our souls, all our strength. And let the church rise up and follow her Lord and King as we long for his appearing. And let us all who name the name of Jesus, who claim him as Savior and Lord, walk in obedience and courage as the days grow darker. And as we go to prayer this morning, I just want to challenge you again. We're just going to stop right now and pray. We're facing a new challenge as a church. We don't know what we're going to do. And anybody that wants to be a part, uh, as, soon as, as soon as we're uh, packed here and everything's across the hall and, and stowed, the gear is stowed, if you want to stay and pray and talk about what our options are, I would love to do that with you this afternoon. So um, go and grab, I almost said taco time. I'm not sure you want to do that to yourselves. Um, have some food. We're going we're gonna to just pray together. Now let's do that now, though. As we go to prayer, just remember that new challenge we're facing as a church. And, and uh, let's prepare our hearts. We're coming up on Resurrection Sunday in a couple of weeks. So, Lord, we just come before you this morning. There's so much more facing us than we have the capacity to deal with. And, and you let that happen on purpose because our sufficiency is not in our strength. Our sufficiency is not in our cleverness to figure out how to deal with the loss of the kids' ministry space or uh, renovating the arcade or any of those things. Our sufficiency is in you. We turn to you. We don't want to be like Saul who would try to make our own way and in and, and, and our own cleverness and human cunning try to de devise ways to, to get what we want. We really just want to hear from you. We want to be led by you. We want to be equipped by you, Lord. We want to see you do what only you can do in this circumstance. And we just submit ourselves to you today. We humble ourselves before you today. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us about our own, uh, the own wickedness and the sin, sin in our own hearts. Cleanse us, Lord, today by your word. Let us stand before you clean Minister to our hearts, Lord, and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Men and women under God's covenant, the life of King Saul serves as a mirror for us to show us our own faults, 
that we might confess him before God, make necessary changes. Masculinity in the home is given by God for the building up and impartation of life, not death. Saul totally misused his authority. And when men assume authority or forcefully assert it in dominating ways, it becomes an instrument of death. When men fail to live out sacrificial love and service to their wives and kids, masculinity becomes an instrument of death. God gives men authority for others and for their good, not for self. So let us be men like David, gentlemen, who love the Lord with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our strength. And let the church rise up and follow her Lord and King as we long for his appearing. And let us all who name the name of Jesus, who claim him as Savior and Lord, walk in obedience and courage as the days grow darker. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.